Well, if you can open your Bibles to the book of James, the book of James, right after Hebrews, you find the letter of James. James 1, 1 through 4. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Last Monday, as some of you already know, Buffalo Bills football player Damar Hamlin fell to the ground in the first quarter after a a routine tackle. And then for, for nine minutes, Damar Hamlin laid on the field receiving CPR, motionless, clinging to his life. An ambulance hauled Hamlin away to a Cincinnati hospital where he remains in critical condition. It was a chilling scene, if you saw that. Millions of people were watching this nationally televised Monday night football game. The Bills and the Bengals players all gathered in the middle of the field to pray, and football was the last thing on everybody's mind, except apparently the NFL, who told the teams to continue playing the game. The players supposedly refused. The coaches supposedly push the pause button to suspend to, to, and, and wait for a, a final decision from the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, to officially suspend the game. It was obvious by this point that indecision and half-heartedness had paralyzed the ones making the final decision. It, it appeared as if they didn't know what was more important, a football game with playoff implications or a man's life. After an entire hour had gone by, the commissioner finally suspended the game. And one newspaper article said about the decision, I quote, Goodell's decision to postpone should have been immediate. The man's life hanging in balance is unequivocally more important than a silly football game. All of us, even couch potato sports fans, can can recognize the immorality of a divided heart. We can immediately sense the moral, moral shallowness of indecision when it's the result of prioritizing something superficial over and, over and against the weighty matters of life and death. There wasn't even a, a sports talk show host who, who got in some hot water for a a tweet that, say, that seemed to suggest just how difficult the decision that the NFL commissioner had to make. And the, and the public response to his tweet was in indignation. He had to go to the next day on, on television, live television, and explain why he said those words. Because the decision to everybody was obvious from the very beginning. This was a slam sh- 
a slam dunk choice to make. Call the game. Call the game. For many people in the church, what's so obvious watching Monday Night Football isn't so clear when it comes to our commitment to Christ. Today we begin a study in the letter on the letter of James, a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit written for the purpose of addressing the spiritual problem of a divided heart. The, the, the main message of, of the letter of James that we will consider for the next few months or so is the cultivation of a wholehearted commitment to Christ. James is the earliest book, a, a written book of the New Testament, written about 44 to 49 A.D. And the, and the first issue that God wants to tackle in the church is a problem of a divided heart. The essence of our problem when it comes to our relationship with Christ is what James calls being double-minded or, or double-souled. We tend to be like waves of the sea tossed and driven one way, way and another. Our divided hearts manifest itself in our words when we utter both blessing and cursing, James says. We profess orthodoxy in our doctrine, but we often do not live an orthodox life, James says. And so in light of this issue that, that many st Christians struggle with, James in this letter calls his readers to Christian maturity. James tells us to stop compromising with worldly values and, and give ourselves wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to overcome our, our divided hearts and, and recognize what is most important in life. See, every day we are in situations when, when God looks at our hearts and, and our actions and he says, call the game. Call the game. It is so obvious. It is so clear what you need to do with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ. John Wesley summarizes so well what James aims for in this letter to the church, what Wesley called Christian perfection. Wesley writes, It is purity of intention, dedicating all the life to God. It is the giving God all our heart. It is one desire and design ruling all our tempers. It is the devoting, not a part, but all our soul, body, and substance to God. This is what the letter of James is about. And this is my hope and prayer that our hearts will look more closely like, like this by the time we finish studying this book together. How does God form this kind of heart in us? In the opening of the letter, James first tells us that it's through trials. It is through trials. God builds in us a whole, a wholehearted commitment to Christ by the forge and crucible of trials. And that's why I've titled this morning's sermon, The Forge of Trials. James greets his recipients in verse 1. Generally speaking, chapter 1 introduces all the major themes that the rest of James will expound and elaborate on. Verse 1, however, identifies the writer, the recipients, and a greeting, all of which were a common standard in the first letter James. The writer of the letter is James, as it says. The Greek word for James is Yaakov. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew name Jacob. 
And so this Greek Jacob over time and through Latin changes became the English word James, but his name was, was Jacob, like the father of the 12 tribes, coincidentally. The James here was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how he describes himself. He doesn't describe himself as Jesus' brother, but as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but if Jesus was my brother, I would be dropping his name all the time. Oh, you don't agree with my decision? Well, what do I know? My brother happens to be just the Lord of the universe. But not so with James. James was no longer his brother in in an earthly sense. Jesus was James's Lord, and James was his slave now. And, And that word slave or doulos in the Greek, it connotates total ownership. James's view of Jesus had undergone quite a a transformation since the days they grew up in the same household together. John 7, 5 says that through Jesus' life and ministry, not even his brothers were believing in him. James was converted after the resurrection, and then he became a leader in the Jerusalem church, as we saw in the book of Acts last year. James doesn't mention a physical relationship with his brother because what qualified him to write this letter was his spiritual relationship with Christ. He acknowledges his subservient status while putting God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on the same plane. He is a slave equally to both. And so by calling himself a slave of both God the Father and the Lord Jesus, James is acknowledging this equality of essence and dignity between the divine persons of the Trinity, while at the same time establishing a distinction between the two. The letter is addressed to the, notice in verse 1, to the 12 tribes, to the 12 tribes. They are in the dispersion, uh, my translation says. It, d- dispersion here is the transliteration of the Greek word that occurs here, uh, diaspora. There's an article here. It's not scatter. It's not an adjective. It is a noun. So this dispersion is a, was, was a technical name for all the nations outside Palestine where Jewish people had come to live as a result of persecution. You find the same word in John 7.35 when John says, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So because of the early date of this letter, we know that James is writing to Jewish Christians who have fled Jerusalem because of Jewish persecution right after Stephen was stoned and martyred for his faith. These these 12 tribes that James is writing to, they are referenced a couple times in the book of Acts. One such time is Acts 11.19. Luke writes, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. When this letter was written, the the church was, was entirely made up of Jews who had converted to Jesus Christ. So the original recipients of this letter from James, they are true Israel. They are ethnic Jews who have received their Messiah, but now they are in exile. And this dispersion was was no easy ordeal for these Jewish Christians. Many had left their livelihoods. They didn't have much materially speaking. They're mostly poor. They were in a foreign land, persecuted by their fellow Jews. They were persecuted by Gentiles for being Jews and for being worshipers of Jesus because the worship of Christ not only threatened Judaism, it threatened paganism. 
And so this is the context of James that is introduced in verse 1. And James knows that when life gets hard, when life gets difficult, there is always the temptation to join the other side and to capitulate and to compromise in order to make your life easier. It is not hard to find yourself one day or in a, in a situation where you're blaming God for your hardships. When you feel like the game is on the line, you can easily lose focus on what is most important in life. And so James's first main introductory exhortation in this letter is found in verse 2. He wants, to, he wants us to consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. In verses 2 through 18, all the, all the issues that James introduces can be related to the theme of the entire letter, which is, again, a consistent and undivided commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. James addresses different needs and struggles. He brings up the situation of his readers, and he wants their response to all of that to be one of spiritual wholeness and, and consistency. And so by addressing trials first in this letter, it, it suggests that, that the tough times that these believers were, were, were facing was the impetus, was the main reason for him writing this letter to them. James wants to highlight, first and foremost, that there is a purpose for all of the trials that come our way that can only be accomplished if we respond in the right way. What is the right way to respond? What is the right way to respond to trials in our lives? Notice of all the different ways that James could have started this verse, this letter, what, what, with what would have been true, uh, you can respond to trials in many ways. You can respond to trials with, with grit. You can respond with, with strength. You can respond to trials with resolve. Instead, James says this, Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, my brother. He says in life, in verse 2, that we encounter various trials. And the Greek word behind trials is, is peripasmois. Uh, I'm sorry, perasmois. It, it can either mean outward trials or it can denote the, the inner enticement to sin and be translated temptation or or tempt, like it's translated in verse 13. Here in verse 2, however, the word is re referring to outward trials that we, that we often encounter or fall into. James will get into inner temptation in a little bit, but for now, he starts with what is most basic to our life's experience, which are external troubles. The trials that James's readers were enduring, specifically according to this letter, were, were poverty, it was religious persecution, it was their predicament as exiles, forced to establish themselves in a, in a new and strange living situation. But, but James also stresses the word various in verse 2. He deliberately cast his net widely. He includes the many kinds of suffering that, that we believers experience in a, in a fallen world, like, like sickness, like loneliness, like disappointment, like loss, like bereavement. In the Greek, in verse 2, James intentionally uses a lot of, of, of P-sounding words in verse 2. 
pasan, perasmois, peripesete, poikilos. So if you read it in the Greek, you'll, you'll hear this and I think he does that to show the, the incessant nature of trials. The trials like ocean waves beating the seashore constantly throughout the day, they're constantly affecting our lives, big and small. Every day we have little trials, right? You're driving the car and there's traffic and, and, you're, and, you, and you, you, you get home and you, you want to eat this nice meal, but, you, but you, it falls on the floor um, your kids are, are, are misbehaving when you're extremely tired. All these little trials, they're there every day, aren't they? And every few months, uh, you have a couple of, a couple of medium-sized trials. Your, your job is in danger. Um, your, your relationship with your spouse gets, gets really tense. Um, uh, your kids get sick. They have to go to the hospital for something serious. And then once or, or twice a lifetime, there are those kinds of trials that, that bend us over. For a few of us, there is maybe one trial that can last an entire lifetime. There are kinds of trials so deep, so hurtful, so soul-crushing, that you wake him in the middle of the night and wonder if what you're going through is some kind of bad nightmare. And that the trial that you're undergoing, it, it, it's so unimaginable, you need to pinch yourself. You, you need to turn to your wife and your husband and ask, Honey, is this really happening to us? Is this really happening to me? And yet, as hard as trials can be, we must not think, we must not think that, that we're alone in our sufferings. Uh, trials are not exclusive to you alone. Look at it in verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brothers. That he's referring to the church, brothers and sisters, everybody, everybody. Plural. This is a plural. See, we can be tempted to feel like we're the only one experiencing what we're going through, but you're not. And so the encouragement that James offers here is for every believer, for all time, wherever you live, we, we all have things that we struggle with. We all have trials that that come our way, small, medium-sized, big. And when we feel like no one can understand our pain, when we think that nobody, nobody has it bad as, as we do, Charles Spurgeon called this a dream of the sufferer. He said the, the singularity of sorrow is a dream of the sufferer. That we can be, be tempted to think that our suffering is utterly unique. We can be tempted to feel that, that we alone have, have faced the world, have faced the worst the world can bring. And, and Spurgeon rebukes this, this poisonous self-pity by saying, Thou sittest alone and keepest silent, and thou sayest in thy heart, I am the man that has seen affliction, but a host of others have, have seen affliction as well as thyself. Come down from thine elevation of special woo. Indulge no longer the egotism of despair. Thou art but one pilgrim along the well-treaded Via Dolorosa. Years ago, my closest friend and, and his wife, they were serving the Lord in the mission field. They had a few children and my friend's wife's, uh, her parents, her mother and father, they, they came to visit them and to help with their young kids and they boarded an airplane that 
eventually crashed into the ocean, killing everybody on board. You're not alone. You're not alone in your suffering, brothers and sisters. When I was, out, when I was in California, Master's University was connected to our church, and so whatever happened there, we would hear in the congregation, we would pray for matters of importance there. And one year, the university lost a first-year student, an exchange student from Korea, during their fun week. The students were at the beach, and they, they dug a huge hole in the sand, and this first-year student climbed inside the hole when the hole suddenly collapsed and he suffocated to death. And his mother had to come to, to church all the way from Korea as her pastor had to, to explain to this mother what had happened. He had to comfort her about the loss of the son that she sent to California to be taken care of and, predict, and protected. You're not alone. You're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your trials. Trials big and small, trials medium-sized, they come to every believer. And I, and I say this not to minimize your suffering, but to encourage you that, that the church, the church is a fellowship of sufferers. That we share together in all the trials of a, of a fallen world. And that means that in this fellowship of, of suffering that we, we weep together, friends. We console each other. We commiserate together. We, we encourage each other. We, we cheer each other. We cheer each other on. We, we clasp and, and grip the hands of our fellow brothers and sisters and we, we, spur, we spur each other on in love and good deeds as we wait for Christ's return when he wipes every tear away, when there, when there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying. We are part of a fellowship of sufferers. You are not alone. We are not alone in our trials. But most importantly, James says in verse 2, that when we fall into various trials, he says, look at the, the beginning of verse 2, we should consider it all joy. Some Bibles translate the words pure joy. It has the, the idea of wholehearted joy, sincere joy. The, the idea is intensity, completeness. Uh, and an unalloyed, an unalloyed joy rather than exclusivity and nothing but joy. Uh, James doesn't suggest that when you face trials, there will be no response other than joy, as if you were commanded never to be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. God in Christ gives believers access to real joy in trials. Genuine joy can attend your sorrows, for according to Charles Spurgeon again, the deeper the waters, the higher our ark mounts towards heaven. The darker the night, the more we prize our lamp. We have learned to sing in the dark with the thorn at our breast. See, Spurgeon isn't saying that, it, that it's all joy and, and no sorrow, but that our joy can be greater than our sorrow. And so if you can imagine, you have these multiple streams of, of water running through your heart. And then I want you to imagine that there is there's one stream of, of joy and there's one stream of, of sorrow and they're running parallel side by side 
not identical streams, but the stream of joy is a, is a gentle brook, while the, while the stream of sorrow is a, is a raging river. And James says here, don't let the, the raging, the raging, the river of sorrow overwhelm you. Don't let it, don't let it pull you under. Don't let the river of sorrow drag you under. But he says, consider, consider it all joy. Consider the stream of joy. Focus your mind. Set your heart on that gentle brook of joy. Direct your will to that stream of joy. Swim there. Bathe in, in those waters. See, in every usage of the word consider in the New Testament, there is an element of, of value judgment. So James isn't saying that the trial is in fact all joy. But he asks us to consider it joy, which means we are to look at the trial as capable of being transformed into something good, into something wonderful, into something beautiful. And so we go from the command to consider it all joy in verse 3 to the reason why trials should be considered joyful in uh, verse... I'm sorry, we go from the command to consider it all joy in trials in verse 2 and the reason why trials should be considered joyful in verse 3. So in order for us to consider our trials joyful, we must know the purpose of trials. And the understanding part, that precedes the considering part. We are to know something important before we consider something joyful. And point number three, verse three, James commands that we know the purpose of trials. Verse three begins with the present participle, present participle knowing to be constantly doing this, to be constantly understanding something very important about your trials. And the, the participle introduces a rhetorical figure known as a gradation or sorties where one clause builds on another clause, and it's like you're, you're like you're climbing a mountain, and each verse repeating words and interlocking phrases and, and synonyms, they all kind of work together as you get to the peak of the mountain in verse 4. And so what you are supposed to know and understand about these various, various trials that you fall into is you, you need to know that the testing of your faith, verse 3, brings about perseverance. Um, the term for test shifts from trials in verse 2 to the word testing in verse 3. And, and that results in a shift of tone. And that, and that shift of tone is necessary because now the emphasis is on the process and purpose of the test. And, and the picture is, is of, a, of a refiner's fire. Your faith is in a forge. And there's an ironsmith. And he's, he's tempering the precious metal of your faith with a hammer. And your faith is, is like pure silver. Your faith, our faith is, is like pure gold being hammered away in the forge by the ironsmith. And, and he's hammering away not to destroy the metal, but to make the metal stronger. See, the process of the, of the pure gold in the, in the fire of the forge it might be difficult, the result is good. It comes out with this beautiful piece of jewelry. You see, the heat of the fire of the forge, it burns away the impurity of error. 
and, and, and hypocrisy and doubt. And, and what it produces is this, is this beautiful golden piece of, of perseverance. That the testing of our faith produces the indispensable character quality of perseverance. And, and perseverance is a, is a virtue only suffering and trials can produce. The word for perseverance, perseverance in verse 3 is hupomonane, and it means sometimes it's translated remaining under or endurance. Sometimes it's translated steadfastness or staying power or heroic endurance. And, and the New Testament repeated, repeatedly emphasizes this need for Christians to cultivate this quality of perseverance or steadfastness when facing difficulty. Paul says in Romans 5.2, we boast in our afflictions knowing that afflictions brings about perseverance. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 says, so that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so believers learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul when they face difficulty. This character quality of perseverance is not a meek, passive submission to circumstances, but rather it is a strong, active response in which the glorious realities of the gospel are proven in practice. One theologian defined it this way, endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Now, I've never ran a marathon, I've never trained for a marathon, but I've, I've watched a lot of marathons on television. And when you train for a marathon, you train so that you may cultivate a kind of endurance that lasts the entire race. See, your first day of training, you don't, you don't run the entire 28 miles. No, you, you run five miles, and for a while, then seven miles, and ten miles, and fifteen miles, and you build it up, and I hear hear really gruesome stories about toenails, and, and, and each day, each day of rigorous training produces the kind of endurance that, that is able to finish the marathon. See, if, if we were never tested, if we were never tried, we, we, we would probably never finish the, this marathon of faith. You see, every trial, when I respond to it rightly, forces me to wrestle with the goodness of God. I am forced to ask myself and pray and say, God, are, are you really good? Are you really good in my pain? And then the Spirit leads me to the right conclusion, right? See, every, every trouble that comes my way forces me to trust in the sovereignty of God. I, troubles force me to bend the knee in prayer and affirm that God, yes, God, you are sovereign. You are in control. It feels chaotic, but I know that you are the king. I know that you are sovereign over every molecule in this world. See, every consequence my sin brings in my life drives me to the foot of the cross to plead Christ's shed blood for my transgressions. If we never experienced the death of our loved ones, would we ever put our hope in the resurrection? Popular Christian blogger and writer Tim Challies, he lost his 20-year-old 20 20 year son 
back in uh, 2020, a couple of, a few years ago, and his son Nick was at Boyce College. He was, he was studying to be a pastor. There was an undergraduate program and a master's kind of combined there. And his son was engaged to be married in about six months before he suddenly collapsed in front of his friends, in front of his younger sister. And, and he died shortly after that. It was a heart arrhythmia that was unknowingly getting worse and worse over time before the unthinkable happened. And Tim Challies, he wrote a memoir of the one year after his son died about how, how every Sunday afternoon he would, he would visit his son's gravesite. It was before that slab of, of dark stone and, and tear-soaked ground that he felt nearest to his son. He wrote, I cannot see him. I cannot speak with him. I cannot wrap my, my arms around him, but I can at least be there. And so it was on an Easter Sunday that this grieving father went to the cemetery again. This time he was listening to Handel's Messiah on his, on his headphones, and he was asking himself, how close is my son? How close is Nick to me? Is he, is he, is he billions of galaxies away in heaven somewhere? Is he 10 billion light years away from me now? Is he in some alternate reality? How close was his son to him on that gravesite? And then when the song got to the 47th movement, the soloist begins to sing, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And then listening to those words of Handel's Messiah came an answer that he was looking for. And his son wasn't far. And his son wasn't far at all. His son was just one trumpet blast away. One great shout away. And then he writes about listening to the, the countertenor take over from the bass. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. It will be at that moment, he thought, at the sound of the trumpet, at the cry of the command, that death's reign will come to an end. And it was in that moment that he realized at his son's gravesite that he was standing on that the place of his greatest sorrow will one day become the place of his greatest joy. That the ground will give up her dead on that day. And the place where we do the most unnatural thing, lower bodies into the cold ground, will be the place we witness the most incredible thing, bodies being raised from the ground to never die again. See, only the, the trial of death for those we love make us long for the resurrection. The only the deepest kinds of losses make us desperate for the return of Christ. See, if we never experienced trial, we would never want Jesus to come back. If every day was a vacation, we would never put our hope in heaven. If it never got hard, we would never pray. If life was always easy, the church would be just irrelevant to go to. If we never felt our own sin, if we never experienced the pain of sin committed against us, we would never share the gospel. 
So brothers and sisters, don't, don't run away from your trials. Don't run away from your trials when they come. You run through them. Run through them with joy, knowing that perseverance is formed as a result of that trial. And so we climb the mountain of trial from perseverance in verse 3 to perfection in, in, in verse 4. Verse 4, let, perve- let perseverance have its perse- let perse- perseverance have its perfect work. Verse 4, let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, when your faith is tested, the immediate result is or should be perseverance. But fortitude is not the end. It leads to something even greater, even more important. That means you can't short-circuit perseverance. You don't want to pull the metal out of the fire too soon. You don't want to abort the developing child. That perseverance has a final end only if you let it have that end. And so James says in verse 4, don't give up. Don't give up. You have to get to the finish line. Let, let perseverance have its, its perfect work. This is a command in the Greek. You have to do this. To refuse to do this is to disobey the Lord. And, and, and so what is the perfect work of perseverance? It's, it's you. You are the perfect work. That trials cultivate perseverance and, and perseverance makes the believer perfect and complete, James says, lacking in nothing. The word perfect has the idea of, of maturity, Christ-likeness, uh, wholeheartedness. He says, uh, let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete. Complete has this, this connotation of wholeness, soundness. It stresses the incremental character of the process. That perfection is not just a maturing of character, but it's a a rounding out as more and more parts of of a righteous character are added, lacking in nothing. See, every fruit of the Spirit is there in the fullest measure possible. Paul says in Romans 5, 3 and 4, we do not boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character. See, this perfect work has an eye on the here and the now. It has an eye on what, and in addition to this eye on what uh, these trials will will do for us in our lives and at the end of the lives, this perfect work also has an eye on when Christ returns and we are transformed into sinless, perfect individuals. See, James, he has the, the very end in mind when he, when he talks about trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under, perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. James here is probably thinking about uh, the Lord Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, every time I turn to Christ in trial, I, be, I become more like him. Nothing like trials forces you to turn to Christ. And the more I turn to Christ, the more I become like him. When trials force me to cling to the, to the, to the anchor of God's sovereignty, I become a more peaceful person. Even, the, even in the heat of the trial. 
The more, that I, the more I trust in his love for me and my troubles, the, the more loving a person I become. The, the more I hope in the resurrection after the death of a loss, the more a joyful person I become, even in my loss. You see, every trial deepens and strengthens those qualities in me. Every day, training for the marathon gives me the endurance for the race. And race after race after race produces an excellent runner. And by the time you're ready to leave this world for another, these character qualities should be fully formed when heaven takes you that one last step. See, 30 to 40 years from now, you don't want to be the same person you are today. My professor once told me that, that our goal by the time that, that we die is to shorten the gap as much as possible between our maturity here on this earth and our heavenly perfection when God takes us home. There should be as, as little as change as possible from who you are here on earth and who you will become in heaven because you've responded to, you responded to life's trials correctly. And, that, and James has that idea. Trials pr produces perseverance. Perseverance produces this, this perfect and complete and lacking in nothing kind of Christ-like character. And then when Christ returns, blessed is the man who perseveres, for you will receive the crown of life. So in verse 4, we get to the summit of the mountain, and James allows us to look down the mountain to where the, the stream of, of joy finally takes us. You see, the stream of joy, it, it descends downward the mountain. It, it, it disappears as you look at it. You see it again, and, and on the way down this mountain, the stream goes forward with, with frenzy at times, and, and other times it's disordered, and other times it has obstacles in its way, boulders, and, and sometimes there's drop-offs. But when it finally arrives in the valley, the water is peaceful, is it not? It is still. The water is placid at rest. It endures a harsh journey down the mountain before it can flow peacefully again at the bottom. And James tells us to look down at the bottom of the mountain where perfect and final joy is found. And that will give you joy today as you go down the mountain of your trials. The hymn writer wrote, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth, fulleth every day, perfect yet it groweth deeper all the way. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully for all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Stayed up on Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as He promised perfect peace and rest. And that's where trials take us in the end. Perfect peace and rest. If you let them. And so we end where we began, beloved. We are to consider it all joy in the forge and crucible of trials.